To answer is human. To question is divine. Welcome to the world of the Hidden Gateway, an exhilarating podcast exploring the concepts humans have been struggling with since the dawn of existence, such as, who are we? Is there such a thing as good and evil, or are they arbitrary constructs? Does the paranormal exist? How can we evolve to a higher state? Can our mind influence what we term as reality? Providing a transcendental approach combined with hard-nosed humanistic analysis, we invite you on a journey to question your worldview in this theater of life. Join our host, Justin Williams, as he explores the outer realms of faith, the supernatural, human potential, and even our concepts of the universal creator with a fascinating array of guests. This is the unseen world, magical, mysterious, and mystical, where your only limitation is your imagination. This is The Hidden Gateway. Hey everyone, welcome back to yet another episode of The Hidden Gateway Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Justin Williams, and today I am happy to welcome Mr. Tom Harden to the show. Tom spent much of his career as a financial analyst in the United States, and in 2008, as part of a cooperation agreement with the U.S. Department of Justice, Tom assisted the U.S. government in understanding how insider trading occurred in the financial services industry. Known as Tipper X, Tom became one of the most prolific informants in securities fraud history, helping build over 20 of the 80-plus individual criminal cases in Operation Perfect Perfect Hedge, a Wall Street house cleaning campaign that morphed into the largest insider trading investigation of a generation. Tom, welcome to the Hidden Gateway Podcast. How you doing, man? Hey, thanks for having me on this show. Looking forward to it. Excellent. Excellent, man. And yeah, I've been wanting to talk to you now, man, for several weeks. So thank you so much again for being a guest. You have such an interesting story. You know, right before we hit record, uh, I mentioned to you that I, I first heard of you on on Rich Roll's podcast. And, you know, you you were very, uh, very detailed in, in everything you've experienced. You were very vulnerable and it was really heartfelt, man. And, uh, you know, I said, hey, I got to get get Mr. Harden on the show. So um, as I as I said in the in the opening in the opening introduction there, man, you've you you have quite the story, man. You know, being an FBI informant and, and going through everything you experienced, and I, t- I just want to hear your story, man. I know our audience would love to hear more about you and, and everything you've been through, and, and even what you're doing today. So, uh, if you would, just you know, brief introduction. Please tell us about yourself. I'm curious to learn, you know, where you grew up, what, what your life was like as a youth, and how you how you got into doing what you what you did at one time. Yeah, thank you. So, um, Tom Harden grew up uh, in the Atlanta suburbs. Um, so, 1980s, 1990s. Um, oldest of three, three brothers, two younger brothers. Uh, father was a Coca-Cola man his whole career. Um, you know, back when people stayed with the same company their whole, their whole tenure. So he was a uh, working oh, yeah. at Coca-Cola there in Atlanta. Um, mother uh, had a daycare business in our home, a childcare business. Uh, so we were always around around that. Um, I was a good student, public public high school uh, soccer player, and um, back in the day in the '90s, uh, applied to three colleges, um, much much less than people apply apply to today. So I applied right. to Georgia Tech locally. There it was my sort of I thought I'd get in there the, the safety school, and then Emory, and then applied to UPenn um, Ivy League school. I didn't even know Penn was a had a uh, was in the Ivy League. I had to go to the public library and learn more about that university. Oh, <laughs> I figured oh, out, good. oh yeah, it's it's not Penn State. It's not the team with the white uniforms. It's this other school <laughs> that has this this business program that I read about. Uh, Wharton School, yeah. one of the top business uh, programs in the in the U.S. And applied early, uh, got deferred, and they got waitlisted. So uh, mm. I was peppering my admissions officer with every quiz and everything. <laughs> I did well and. High school, I think they got tired of me, and they let a let, they let a boy from Georgia in. So I I, I put their quota. <laughs> they had to, they let somebody in one person from every every state. So very uh very different uh, now with them. But I got in there, um, completely became really enthralled with the markets. I'd never traded or anything like that. Um, but got to where I was wanted to eventually go into picking stocks. Um, I started in the investment banking field, so people know that it's like really finance boot camp. You 
You go be an analyst, low man on the totem pole, you work these hundred hour weeks, but you get sort of 10 years of learning into two or three years. And yeah. I did that only for a few months. And after my sort of fourth all nighter, uh, where the boss leaves at 5 p.m., puts something on your desk and says, have it to me at 8 a.m., uh, a friend of mine called from Connecticut, Greenwich, Connecticut, um, and recruited me to be at a hedge fund uh, in Greenwich, Connecticut. So this is around the year 2000, 2001. Yeah. Um, people familiar with the stock market, that was like, well, the, the dot-com stocks were going uh, bananas around that That's time. Right. That's these, right. You know, yeah. Companies that went out of business. And so uh, I flew from, I was working in Los Angeles in investment banking and left that and flew into Greenwich, Connecticut, about eight feet of snow. They had, they had a blizzard. So I was I was rethinking my uh, career decision there right. <laughs> in LA for, for Greenwich. Um, but long story short, I got into the hedge fund business. Um, I, I loved it uh, just because it was um, like a meritocracy. Like if you pick the right stocks, you could be very well compensated. You could make millions of dollars, you know, when you're in your 20s. And it was sort of like um, we had 12 financial analysts picking stocks and reporting to a portfolio manager. So sort of like, you know, an NBA team, like a small group, you have like high performance uh, you know, high rewards, but also if you don't pick the right stocks, if you, you know, quote Mr. Free Throws, you're going to get fired. So, but I like yeah, that because yeah. that was uh, the unlimited opportunity at that time in my 20s. And so um, I can continue there or, or pause or. No, no, no. That That's good, man. That's good. Yeah. So just going back to when you lived in California, I think I remember hearing you say that you worked in Silicon Valley as well with a lot of the tech companies up there, right? Um, so I did work in Silicon Valley, but I covered, when I got to the hedge fund, I was covering tech stocks. Um, mm -hmm. So at that time, uh, you know, Yahoo, Apple Computer, before it was just Apple, um, you know, Microsoft, uh, Intel. So I covered all those tech stocks okay. uh, when I was at the hedge fund. Um, so at the hedge fund, if people aren't familiar with that, it's it's an investment, um, you know, a fund, a pool of capital. The investors are usually endowments or pensions or high net worth individuals where you can bet on stocks going up and bet on stocks going down. So that's called being short stocks. So if you, uh, no matter what the market does, you should be able to make money for your investors because you can bet on things, you know, being good or, or being bad. And one of the, the, the big investments I had that never, I never saw the fruition, which we'll get into uh, later, was to be uh, bet on Google after it became a public company oh, and bet wow, against man. the yellow page stocks. So wow. if you remember, um, you know, I know you remember back in the day, we got those yellow page uh, books in our, oh, yeah. on our driveway. Definitely, <laughs> so, I remember that, yeah. Yeah, once Google became a public company, you could kind of figure out, well, these yellow page stocks are probably going away. So right. uh, we short those uh, long Google. So th those are the kind of things we worked on. I loved it again uh, in my 20s. You know, we picked the right stocks, highly compensated, picked the wrong ones, get fired. I like being on the hot seat. Mm -hmm. uh, but that also introduces some pressures, um, some, some focus on short term performance. Mm -hmm. And um, eventually I would go take a second job in the hedge fund industry where I'd be a junior partner at a new hedge fund. So now I'm 28 years old. Uh, I own a piece of this business. I have a great um, position in the industry, the potential to, to make a lot of money. Uh, but also I would say I became aware that insider trading was like rampantly going on mm -hmm. um, in the hedge fund industry. And just so people probably have familiar, are familiar with that, what that means, but it's buying or selling stocks on information that's uh, not public. So it's not available on Google or uh, and the newspapers. And it's also material. So if it were to be public, um, it would move the stock price. So mm. uh, to give an example, uh, in my town in New Jersey, if I just walked down to Starbucks and said, hey, how is your uh, revenue looking this quarter? If they tell me Westwood, New Jersey, Starbucks, it doesn't move the stock price. But if I flew to Seattle, uh, played golf with Howard Shorts and said, how is, mm -hmm. how is the quarter looking? Yeah. Um, and he told me information that that's material and non-public because that drives the price of Starbucks stock. So um, this is this was rampantly going on. Um, it's kind of like back in the day in the 90s, cheating in baseball or a few years later with doping and cycling, sort of the yeah. the, the quote, everybody's doing it. That's kind of what it felt like. Right, um, right. I never felt I had to cross that line until one day uh, my boss came into my office. Uh, we had lost money in the first quarter of investing at my second hedge fund. And he said, look, man, we just lost money in the first quarter. Uh, we have to start looking for shorter term opportunities to make money uh, every month or we may not survive. So when any goal in the business um, goes from longer term to short term, you know, the opportunity to start cutting corners uh, certainly increases. Mm -hmm. And I'd also say 
he gave me a very ambiguous message, but I didn't ask him any clarifying questions like, what do you mean anything goes? Are we talking about oh, staying wow. within the framework of the law? Okay. Or are we going to start crossing the line like these other guys, like our competition's doing? So okay. um, didn't ask him any questions or any clarifying questions at that point. I see. I see. Wow. So, man, you, as you said, you, you grew up outside of Atlanta, down there. Um, then you, you went on to, to Penn. Right now, yep. as a kid, did you did you was it your dream to get into stocks into the financial industry, or that's just something that, that came about later on? That just came uh, came about getting into the pen. Um, like my growing up in Georgia, my sort of successful uh, parents, friends, parents are like lawyers or accountants or CPAs. So I was kind of yeah. thinking maybe CPA or tax attorney, and then um, I started learning about the the stock market and the hedge funds at Penn. Okay. Okay. I see. I see. And can you still hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. For some reason, I'll, I'll delete this part out the interview, but I'm not sure why the, uh, why that went blank. I'm not sure if you can still see me or not, but, um, all right. So fast forward, man, you, you take the gig in, in Connecticut, right? The, the firm in Connecticut, right. you're 28 years old. Okay. Your boss throws you this hint that, okay, there's a way for you to make it happen, quote unquote, right? Uh, kind of, right. I don't know, kind of dangled the carrot out there. Definitely, I'd imagine it definitely left you curious, maybe thought about it and didn't think about it, but eventually you came to learn what he was talking about. So that's, that, that's right. That's right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so tell me about how you actually got into doing that insider trading. I know your boss said what he said, what was the first step after that? Yeah, so he said what he said. Again, I didn't ask him any clarifying questions, just assumed anything goes. And a few months later after that meeting, so now it's uh, just to set the date, it's March of 2007, about that time. Um, I got a call from another uh, stock analyst like me in the industry. And she's somebody I talked to over the years. Uh, I always shared some of my best ideas with her, like the Google Yellow Page trade, like we talk about that. But she said, hey, Tom, uh, I had made her a lot of money over the last few years on some great ideas. Um, she had something for me, uh, but I couldn't tell anybody. And then she mm. proceeded to say that uh, a Moody's analyst, so Moody's is a bond rating agency who was roommates with her cousin, uh, told her a company, Kronos, a tech stock, uh, was going to be acquired by a private equity firm in a few dates. Uh, here's the date. Here's the price. Here's the name of the firm. So... Uh, very explicit information, like very exact information. Up to that point, I knew her to be kind of full of rumors, always calling with like a rumor out of Silicon Valley. But this okay. sounds like stark, explicit information. Wow. Um, I didn't make any trades at that point because to me it sounded like, you know, that's the point where you're crossing the line. But later that day, I was talking to a friend outside my firm who worked at another uh, trading firm. And he was down that month and we were talking and he's like, man, Tom, are you hearing anything out there I could you know, put a short-term trade on? And initially, I said, I'm not going to trade this, but this woman just called me this morning uh, saying this you know, analyst told her this company, Kronos, is going to be acquired next week. Now, for people listening right there, you may not know, I could actually be charged with insider trading just by sharing this information with him. And I didn't oh. make any trades up to that point yet. Okay. And so he goes and tells his entire firm, apparently, um, they buy you know thousands and thousands of shares and call options, which is a big bet on the stock price going up. I hadn't made any trades yet, but the next day or so, he calls me back uh, and he said, dude, did you buy some? And when an employee uh, breaks the law, it's usually three reasons. It's um, a, a need to break the law. So is there a need? Well, I had a need for short-term performance, so maybe that. Um, mm -hmm. There's an opportunity. So the opportunity for me to buy this stock was... I could buy a stock in our portfolio and not have to talk to my boss as long as it was less than 1% of the money that we manage for clients, like a very small stock position. Mm -hmm. um, and so I calculated and bought a 0.9% position in our portfolio in the stock Kronos. Um, and the third reason an employee crosses the line is rationalization. So I can tell you, I totally rationalized it. I said, these other guys are making millions doing it. Yeah. I'll just place a small trade. Uh, just one time, uh, I can still think of myself as a good guy and place this trade, meaning like, you know, my whole life I've done good good things, but like, you know, you kind of get in your head, well, I'll just cross this line once and never do it again. 
and you know all these other guys are making millions i'll just make the small trade it seems like everybody's doing it right. and you know it doesn't really seem material at all it's such a small small position and so and i kind of felt like if the boss had a problem um he would ask me questions and so mm-hmm. bought this stock uh no questions from the boss about three weeks later uh the the news that she had told me actually came out uh, publicly. So wow. this company was acquired exactly as she said. Um, I kind of thought maybe this was a rumor because she had never called me with something like this before and it's exact information. And I hate to say it here, instead of freaking out, I actually kind of felt a little bit of adrenaline uh, go at my back thinking like, oh my oh, God, man. I never knew about any of this stuff like this. Like these other guys who were doing it, um, I never felt I'd be in that end group. But now, wow, like I'm now a part of this in-group of these guys who were doing it. So you just stop there. How, how much did you make off that first first deal? What was your what was your money? I, yeah, I, I don't even know, to be honest. Um, of the four, so it happened three more times where she would call uh, with these tips. I placed the small trades and the boss, you know, looking the other way, basically saying, hey, hey, Tom, keep doing what you're doing, but don't tell me how you're doing it. On the four trades, uh, my firm made over a million dollars for our investors, but me personally, uh, as the junior partner, I made $46,000 on these four trades, which, you know, now I'm 29 years old at that point. Yeah. Very bluntly, like $46,000 was the price of professional suicide, to be honest. Like wow. $46,000 is what I threw my career away for at wow. the end of the day. And over uh, what span of time before trades over? Was that over like six months, a year, or? Yeah, seven months, seven months. So seven March months. Uh, okay. to about August, September of, of 2007. So all four trades are perfect information. And again, uh, the boss, uh, one of the trades, the boss said, oh, it's one of those. Don't tell me how you're doing this. So he was looking, I think, for like plausible deniability about like <laughs> not asking me the questions. <laughs> and he's the closest thing I have to a mentor. And so I'm thinking if he's not calling me out for this, he thinks it's okay because these other guys are doing it. Um, you know, it seems like it's fine, even though we're breaking the law. It just felt like, well, we're one of like, you know, hundreds of people doing this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So 28, 29 years old, 46K in seven months on top of your, the other money you're making, but that's just off of the four deals. Um, did that, I mean, did it like transfer your life financially in a huge way? I know eventually it did. Because I, I wanted to ask you, like, what what did life once you really got deep into it? Like, what was life like for you? Cause I'm I'm kind of interested to know about the culture, right? Of the of the yeah. people that are involved in this. You know, I'm sure millions of people have seen like Wolf of Wall Street, and those guys are just right. you right. know drugging it up, balling out of control, right. things right. like right. that. Yeah. Like, is that is that pretty accurate? Yeah, I think uh, in the hedge fund business, there's some of that. Um, But it was really, to your point, the culture of like, um, don't ask any questions. Um, You know, anything goes. Um, Yeah, we made these four trades, but they're so small compared to everybody else. You know, other guys are making millions of dollars on this. So I'm kind Mm -hmm. of looking at my 46,000 as like, this is, um, I remember thinking, oh, this is like dropping a rock in the Grand Canyon, right? Like, who would ever know uh, $46,000? Like. And no, you know, it didn't move the needle for me uh, financially at all. And I really, people over the years have asked me, you know, if you didn't do it for the money, like, well, why did you do it? And I, I, I just think I rationalized it. And I, I, I can tell you that um, when I was 28, 29, I wasn't part of this illicit in-group, like the people who I knew were doing it, mm-hmm. uh, who were you know, older than me, much more wealthier. And then once I got this tip and placed this trade, the next conference I went to where I met these guys um, who I knew were doing this is kind of almost like their business model. Um, I told him I knew about the Kronos trade. And one of the guys was like, you know, Tom, you don't know about this. Uh, Tom, you do real work. You do real financial analysis. You're not in our group. And I said, hey, guys, I know about the next deal happening in a few months. And one of the guys put his arm around me and said, hey, man, now you're part of our, our group. And so I think um, it was just me not being part of this group, maybe having some insecurities about these guys are cheating to get ahead. And um, when I really should have just been focused on myself, like improving as an investor, improving as an analyst Mm -hmm. and not caring what these other guys were cheating to get ahead. But I felt I really felt prey to that that pressure and um, what other people were doing around me at that time. 
I see. So it was it doesn't sound like it was necessarily a, a greed thing, right? I mean, I can imagine once you got in deep, the money was unbelievably wonderful for you. But it sounds like you were just, like you said, wanted to be in the quote unquote in crowd, right? And you also said right. that you, you know, you lived a, a pretty straight, narrow life, you know, up until that point, right? Was it, did the, yeah. the uh, adrenal, adrenaline rush kind of quote unquote living on the edge? Did that, was that, did that play a factor as well? Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great uh, insight because um, you're right. I was living kind of the straight and narrow life, wasn't out partying, didn't have a drug addiction like like many of these guys had, mm-hmm. um, you know, went straight home to my wife, which later when the FBI approached me, uh, they said I was one of the few guys that wasn't, you know, cheating on his wife that they were tracking. So live, live, oh, wow. live uh, you know, a narrow, a very straight and narrow life. So I think um, it, it's, you're right. It's, it was sort of like now. I have a little deviance, you know, now I have like this deviance in my life where I could make these four trades and now I'm, now I'm not doing something like, you know, now I'm not being the boy scout. Um, now I have this sort of, uh, this deviant side of me, uh, with these, with these trades because otherwise, um, you know, life was pretty, pretty normal. Got it. And Tom, how long did this go on? I know you talked about the first seven months in the 46 K. How long did you do this total until you got caught? So it was uh, just the seven months, um, $46,000 for trades. Mm -hmm. Uh, So about eight or nine months after the seventh, uh, after the seventh, after the fourth trade, um, I was leaving my apartment uh, Tuesday morning in July of 2008 to drop off some dry cleaning, stepped on the sidewalk before getting a taxi to the office. And this guy behind me said, are you Tom? And I turned around. Uh, two FBI agents were on the street in Manhattan, knew my name, dark suits, yeah. wallets out, come sit down with us. So we sat down at a fast food restaurant in Manhattan, and the agent said, hey, man, we know about your four trades. And those were all like, you know, months and months ago. Hey, man, we know that you were just down in Atlanta visiting your baby nephew Carter for his baptism last weekend. Jeez. And my first thought was, oh, my God, my dad's going to kill me. You know, what's he going to say? Because all he can oh. talk about was my success. Right. No, he doesn't really know what a hedge fund is. I'm just doing well. Oh, my God, I'm going to have to tell him this. And then I thought, oh, my God, my wife's going to leave me. She had no idea about these trades. I never talked mm. to her about it. And then I thought, oh, my God, um, you know, this might impact my career, which, which of course, it did. Uh, right. Oh, my God, right. I might be going to prison. But it went from this thought that my dad's going to be disappointed to going to prison. And I immediately started making implicating statements to the FBI. Mm. Um, they start writing a bunch of things down about these four trades that I tell them. Um, you know, I wasn't playing like, oh, I'm a tough guy. Show me, you know, prove you have something on me. Right. I uh, started talking to them right then, kind of like confessing uh, to the FBI at that point. I think they were kind of taken aback, like I was so ready to uh, confess this because usually people would lie or say, no, it wasn't. It was rumors. Talk to a lawyer. And then I didn't do any of that. So I started talking to them. And they said, Tom, you can really help us out, build these cases. And I was kind of confused. I'm like, what do you mean help you out? Should I talk to an attorney? And they said, no, you know, don't talk to an attorney. Um, so the FBI, just to make a point, is going to play by their own rules, you know, in these situations. Right. So now I've watched enough Law and Order on TV. I know I could talk to an I should have known I could talk to an attorney. <laughs> but just felt at that point, hey, let me start taking orders from these guys. I knew I did it. I knew it was wrong. And now they're giving me a chance. Um to speak to them at least. And uh, they said I could only, I could only tell my wife about this encounter and I needed to call them if I felt that I could help them. Mm-hmm. And so um, that was a Tuesday morning. I went to the office, um, played it pretty cool with my boss. I was late to work, obviously, but it was like the stock market was crashing in 2008. It was a terrible time for the market. And so Ooh, my yeah, face right. was always white, ghost white. So it wasn't, I didn't really stand out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went to St. Patrick's for a confession that day for lunch, which is a cathedral in New York City, if people don't know. Um, and I had just converted to Catholicism for marriage uh, two years before. Okay. I went and had a confession with the priest there and told him everything. And uh, he said, look, Tom, it sounds like 99% of your life, you were on the straight and narrow. 1% of your life, you really messed up. But if the FBI is giving you a chance to help them, uh, you should help them. So that was kind of my penance. Um, when I left St. Patrick's, and then I, I still had to tell my wife, um, and that was tough because I waited till Friday. I waited like three days, so that was a Tuesday morning. Oh, I waited man. till Friday. That was I was tough like, three I, days, I, yeah, yeah, man. I didn't, I didn't know what to say. Like, is she going to leave me? Eighty-five um, percent of marriages end in this situation when a spouse gets a felony. 
and, and I thought, oh, my God, you know, she's going to leave me. And so I didn't know what to say. So I would leave um, the apartment before she woke up just saying, oh, the stock market's crazy. I got to get to work. Mm-hmm. And then I would get home after she went to bed. And I finally was just having panic attacks at night, bed sweats, mm-hmm. uh, you know, waited till Friday after work. And, OK, here's the weekend. I'm going to have to address this now. And so I got home and I said, hey, you know, I have to tell you about something that happened this week. And um, she was actually working at Lehman Brothers. So she had all these stories at the time of oh. Lehman Brothers before they went bankrupt. Okay. And I said, look, I had something happen. You got to sit down. And I said, Tuesday morning, the FBI was in my face about these four trades. I totally did it. And she paused, which was like seemed forever. And she said, can you, can you say that again? And I said it all again, Tuesday morning, FBI. And she said, she paused again, like forever and said, well, you know, you didn't do anything to hurt me. And just left it oh, at that. Wow, uh, and okay. again, 85% of marriages end right there. Right. Um, and so I called the FBI like that Monday and said, I didn't, I didn't talk to an attorney. Like I didn't talk to an attorney for over a year. And um, I said, what does it mean to help you guys? And I met them for lunch. And they're like, you're going to have to wear this for us. And they were holding up a little like um, piece of metal. And at the time, we still had Blackberries. And so I said, oh, is that a battery for my Blackberry? And they're like, no, this is a, a wire, like a recording device. Dang. You're going to have to get some major players in the industry uh, who have interest to the FBI into conversations about times that they uh, traded on inside information and help them build these bigger cases. So right there, they had flipped me to to helping them out. Goodness gracious. So they they threw the wire in your face, said, okay, part of this process is you're going to have to wear this and flip on other people, man. I mean, you know what, Tom, I wanted to ask you, what was the process like, you know, mentally, psychologically, in regards to the idea of being an informant? Because I imagine that a lot of people, maybe some of the people you had to flip on, you knew them personally, no? Yeah, so some of them, um, I was aware of their reputation, but I was lucky that they didn't make me like, they weren't putting me in a situation where I had to wire on um, friends that I had tipped. Uh, I had a kind of an open playing field, like, Tom, who are the worst actors in the industry? Like, can you, okay. can I paint the picture? Can I, like, draw the case up for the FBI? And I said, oh, do you know about so-and-so in Silicon Valley? Or do you know about this guy in Connecticut? And but these were guys that were like 47 years old. And again, I'm like 29. So they're not my social circle. But I knew that they were running the hedge funds that were rampantly trading on inside information. So I had to build relationships with these guys. And uh, my cover story and the way the FBI framed this for me was actually playing up to my uh, patriotism. I guess they said, Tom, what you're going to have to do for your country is wear a oh. wire. Like that was our psychological tactic with wow, me. Like, okay. you're, you're going to help us clean up the industry. So right. that was a spend that they put on it. So I thought, well, I already did what I did. And so let me, let me help these guys out, you know, the way that they were framing it. Um, and so what I would do was, is get meetings with these guys um, under the cover of I'm, I'm interviewing for a job uh, because it's 2008 and you know, the market's terrible. I'm probably going to be leaving my firm, which was like a pretty, good story to tell because it was like a terrible stock market mm-hmm. um and i meet with these guys at like a starbucks and say you know i knew about my four trades last year how do you go about getting your information for your stock trades but if i'm asking you like a very pointed question about like times you broke the law and you don't know me that well you're probably not going to say anything right you're going to exactly. change the subject or right, right. So that was a really awkward situation like there was no training for this i was just kind of thrown into the fire to see what would happen I'd always change the subject because I was so paranoid when there was silence. Um, like I'd ask a question, there's too much silence. And then I would just change the subject. The FBI would listen to this later and they'd say, Tom, you're doing a terrible job. And I said, Hey guys, it's my first time doing this. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I've never, never done this before. Right. So mm-hmm. this went on for like two years um, where I'd be in these situations with people. And I, I can tell you about my scariest moment or um, get to that. Yeah, yeah. Tell me, tell me about it. What yeah. happened with the scariest moment? Yeah. So there was one guy who was high up the FBI's list. Um, I've got him in probably 15 face-to-face conversations. He'd always change the subject. I felt, you know, this guy must be on to me. He's changing the subject. One Sunday afternoon, um, he gave me a call and he said, Tom, we need to have dinner tonight. We need to talk. This was on a Sunday. Yeah. I called the FBI and said, you know, this guy you want wants to have dinner tonight. Uh, they got excited. They met me at the Grand Central train station in Manhattan, uh, gave me the wire. 
I took the train up to Greenwich, Connecticut, where this guy lived. Uh, he picked me up at the train station and he said, Tom, good to see you. I brought swim trunks for you. We're going swimming at my oh, mother's house. My so, goodness. What? I, so he's on to me. Yeah. <laughs> like the, the Sopranos is popular that summer. So all these ideas are going through my head. <laughs> I, I played it cool. I said, let's go swimming. I'm used to wearing this wire. Meanwhile, I'm about to have a heart attack. Right. Uh, we drive to this old mansion in Greenwich. He starts disrobing in this room. So he wants to see if something was like taped to my chest. Okay. And I excused myself, went to the restroom, took the wire out, put it in my jeans, put okay. these swim trunks on. Right. Um, so it's the two of us walking out to this pool. I was so quiet. I saw a shovel against the house, a hole in the ground. I thought, oh, my God, is this guy going to try to kill me or something? Oh, and then goodness. I just saw he was having some like landscaping done. He had some plants he was planting. So I got, yeah. got in the swimming pool and um, he grabs a tennis ball. And we're playing this awkward game of catch. He's pouring it on psychologically, freaking me out. And after a few minutes, he said, Tom, he had spoken to an attorney. He has to ask me a question, and I have to answer truthfully. I was going to give up my cover here. I was so scared. Uh -huh. And I said, what do you want to know? He said, okay, Tom, had I been approached by the SEC, who's the regulator? And truthfully, you know, I had not been approached by the right. SEC. It was right, the FBI, right. who's law right. enforcement. Mm -hmm. I, I just said, no, not the SEC. He doesn't get that nuance. He's like, oh, I just had to make sure you weren't wearing a wire. Sorry about all this. Oh. Uh, and then he starts making implicating statements um, about the trades, the crimes he committed. But because it wasn't recorded, mm -hmm. he was actually never even charged um, by the FBI. Really? Uh, this was probably the worst actor in the entire industry. Hey. And they never, they never got him because I couldn't record that conversation uh, in the swimming pool. And so... That was probably my, my scariest moment. Like, I didn't know what was going to happen. Goodness gracious. That is insane, man. So he never he never got caught. Is he – are you privileged to say if he's still in the industry or, or not? So he actually was still managing money for outside investors uh, only a few years ago. And now he has a family office. So once you're wealthy enough, you just manage your own money. You know, so that's okay. what he's, he's doing now. But he was never – I mean, they know who he is, obviously. Um, but they never were able to build that case, I think, because um, if they didn't have the person on the wire, like it's just they had so many other people speaking, like mm -hmm. they just didn't go after it. Um, but wow, that was mm -hmm. the worst guy. <laughs> I bet, man. Wow. Now, how rampant is this behavior by others in the same position you were in? I mean, obviously, you know, I mentioned Wolf of Wall Street. People are familiar with that. Right. People are familiar that Martha Stewart did, what, a year or two in prison for insider trading. Mm -hmm. And then right. I think the biggest one that I can remember and I think we're about the same age, um, is the Enron situation with, who was it, Bernie Madoff, where it was just, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, just what, multi-million, might even been a billion-dollar type situation yeah. going on. So is it like- so Madoff- it, Go ahead, go ahead. Madoff what? Oh, yeah. So Madoff was the biggest Ponzi scheme ever. So that wasn't insider trading as much oh, as like money oh, coming okay. in, money coming out. Like gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. That, but he, he lost, uh, I think it was $19 billion. Um, yeah of his investors' money. So that was that was the biggest. Actually, that became um, public. He was arrested in December of 2008. So I was actually in the thick of what I was doing with the FBI when he was um, arrested at the, at the same, you know, around that time, like during the financial crisis. Okay. Um, but insider trading, there's like 50 cases a year. So there's about one a week okay. um, where somebody, you know, buys a stock with uh, inside information, material, non-public information. So it's actually still happens pretty pretty regularly and not just um in my old industry like it could be anybody in the country like if you have a friend that works at a public company and you know oh, you're right, having right. a beer and they slip up and tell you something and you go trade it like you can be prosecuted or yeah, yeah. um there's cases where there's like a state attorneys working on somebody's estate that used to be a, like a business person and they get information and trade it so it really could be anybody if you have a brokerage account and you have access to somebody with information like you could actually be at risk of, of crossing the line so it's a pretty common i think it's the oldest economic crime in the world like people used to do this way back in the 1700s like the first stock was listed on the stock exchange in like 1790 and people were insider trading that so it's like mm -hmm. it's been going on for a long time nothing new under the sun huh <laughs> goodness gracious okay so i've talked to people who think that the stock market is fixed and uh some of them may think that you are simply just getting a piece of the pie after everything you've been through, what would you say to that? What would you say to those people? Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think it's fixed, but I do think um, 
insider trading uh, is rampantly still going on. <laughs> um, you know, there's about 50 cases a year, but I think that the SEC, who is the regulator, like the financial, uh, you know, markets police officer, they don't have enough resources uh, to go after like the real bad actors who are making millions of dollars. Um, so I, I think like, you know, you want to keep your you know money in the stock market. I would I would tell people just invest in like the index because um, over time, you know, that that over over many years, it always you know sort of goes up. Um, but individual stock picking, like you really have to know what you're doing. Um, and unfortunately, like insider trading is still still rampant. Um, people may know that like in Congress, um, if you trade stocks with inside information, it's only a two hundred and fifty dollar fine under the stock act, which is totally Are you serious? crazy because yeah. So these guys, so when I speak at a conference today, um, and I'll get into what I'm doing today, like I'll, I'll speak at a conference and everybody at the conference is like, well, what about Congress? And like, you know, Hey, those people make the laws and the law right now is if you're in Congress and trade stocks on inside information, you pay a $250 fine and Congress will often have their relatives, um, trade stocks and the relatives account. Right. So there's easy ways around this. Jeez. And I don't, I don't really see it changing, which is really uh, frustrating because right. I totally accept responsibility for what I did and the consequences. But wow, people that are doing it today are in, in Congress. Like, um, there's a few Twitter accounts that follow trading from Congress, and it's going on every week. So I don't see it ever changing because they make the laws, right? So it's mm -hmm. like, uh, it seems like I heard something earlier this year regarding Nancy Pelosi's husband with uh, some insider trading where she last minute sold some stocks or acquired some stocks and yes you know nothing you you heard that as well you heard about that too yeah yes yeah. you can follow that her uh paul pelosi um she's up there i believe of the 400 some odd congress people like 90 at least 98 violated the stock act um last year goodness so quite a few people and if my memory served me correct um i think it was pelosi for the democrats and i believe representative crenshaw in texas for the republicans were the two <laughs> Two of the worst actors. So it, it's not just one party. It's both. It's both. Everybody. Uh, it's just, you know, Everybody. Yeah, it is. And, and, uh, goodness. Goodness. Yeah. Goodness. Yeah. Now, earlier in the conversation, you mentioned your father. You said first thing that you thought about was your dad. Well, he's going to be disappointed right. to me. And I want to ask you about that. Um, obviously, they were disappointed. But um, did they support you accordingly throughout everything? How, what was that like? Yeah. So um, I couldn't tell them until my name became public. So. Okay. Uh, the FBI was done with me eventually. Like I couldn't help them out anymore. And, and, and I eventually talked to an attorney. So I did talk to an attorney and, uh, the FBI, uh, my attorney said, Tom, you know, you've been working with the FBI for over a year without any legal advice. Like, you know, who was your attorney before me? I can't believe you didn't have one, Tom. And of course I said, Hey, it's my first time doing this. Like these guys told me not to talk to an attorney. So, uh, eventually my attorney said I had done a lot for the FBI. Um, I had worn a wire like 48 times and my attorney's like, what did you make millions of dollars? I said, no, though, the punchline was I made $46,000. And he's like, they got a lot of flesh out of you. Um, you know, it's, it's probably okay to stop working with the FBI. So when I did that, the FBI released my name to the press like immediately. Mm -hmm. So it was on the front page of the wall street journal. Tipper X is Tom Harden. Mm -hmm. uh, my FBI code name was Tipper X T I P P E R X. And so that was released. And I lost like so many uh, connections, Facebook friends, LinkedIn connections once my name became released because I realized anybody that knew me at all, like in pro any professional capacity, they were told to cut ties uh, with me. And of course, these people had no idea I was doing this. Right. Um, I had to tell my parents as soon as possible. That was a really rough conversation because all they could talk about, you know, was my success um, and just to tell them that this, that I did this. You know, people really start to lose like trust in me. Like, oh, I thought I knew you. I didn't know you were doing this. And so, I will say that they've supported me. But man, it, it's like um, it's it's taken just a long time to get people's trust trust back. Um, mm. And you know, uh, several friends um, reached out actually. So, oh, four okay. friends from college who I hadn't spoken to since college reached out and said, "Hey, you want to get a coffee or a drink and talk? Like, I know who you are." So. That's this cool. experience, you kind of figure out who your true friends are, but I don't recommend anybody going through something like this to figure that out. But <laughs> that's what that's what kind of went. Like you kind of see, like okay, this person's not connected me with anymore on Facebook. They weren't, you know, whatever. Like, yeah, I understand it at the time, but like, wow, it's been you know over ten years, and some people still don't want to connect or reconnect, which is fine. Um, I could only do what I could do today. Right. But right. man, it was a long, it was a long slog. There was a lot of um, 
I was dealing with a lot of shame and guilt. Um, okay. So um, when I first started speaking about this, uh, I would beat myself up so much, like I'm a terrible person and, and did a bad thing, <laughs> which is shame. And then the guilt is just, I did a bad thing. And I continue to share this story today with young professionals and students to kind of help them hopefully not go down this path of rationalization and making these right, decisions. Right. And so I didn't realize the difference between shame and guilt for years, to be honest. And that was really an eye opener for me um, where, you know, shame is not good for anybody. Like I'm terrible and did a bad thing versus guilt. I did a bad thing. And today I'm going to try to help people not you know, do the bad thing, not go down that path of, uh, you know, rationalizing or, or going down that slippery slope. But that was a long, a long slog. And mm-hmm. um, what helped was I couldn't work forever because I wasn't I wasn't sentenced yet for my crime. It took like seven seven years to be sentenced and so okay i got into um just running just trying to take care of myself physically okay and then got into running uh marathons and ultra marathons and lost 60 pounds awesome and man. um that that was a good outlet but i was so into endurance sports um and when i was on uh the ritual podcast you know several years ago now it was like all consuming in my life where this is all i could do was like just run in the morning run at night and i mm-hmm. wasn't dealing with what I had to deal with in my marriage and my life and like, what's okay. my professional future. Right. I would just go for a run. So running is good, but there's also a point where endurance sports can take over for other things in life that you're not dealing with. So I was okay. definitely using it as a crutch. Right. Not have to deal with like what I need to deal with. Awesome, man. So that's, that's great point, man. I'm glad that you came to that realization that uh, the running, though it did have some benefits, it, it prevented you because you got so entangled in it, prevented you from going through that healing process, if you will, because, I mean, you know, what you experienced was traumatic, man, right? You 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 had this great career. You have a family. Um, I think I heard on the other podcast that you, you have children as well. And then this life-changing right. traumatic event hap- happened that that you caused. So you had to go through a healing process, right? And in fact, right. it was, mm-hmm. go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, and it was all to your point. It was all self-inflicted too. So the hardest <laughs> part was I did this to my family. I did this to myself. And one of the worst days of my life, you know, was the FBI obviously approaching me on the street. That was one of them. But really uh, when my name became public on the front of the wall street journal, people were at my house, reporters were at my house, um, oh, yeah. you know, just trying to get a quote. And my wife got home from work. There was reporters. And I was a stay-at-home dad with our infant daughter, Molly, at that time. <laughs> and my wife just holding Molly, you know, crying in the corner, looking at me, thinking, like, what, what did I do to them? And, and you want to feel – it's hard to feel smaller than that, you know, when you – when you, it's your own actions. Right. And this has happened. And how do I get us out of this? Um, so, man, I just felt awful. But, again, uh, we worked through it. And thank God um, she stayed with me. Now we're 18 years married. And – Wow, you know, uh, that's that's a blessing, but it was not easy. I think it was a, a traumatic experience to your point, and it was just all all self inflicted. Still going through a lot of that shame uh, at that time. Have you ever considered that everything you've been through was sort of a spiritual awakening? And and what I mean by that, Tom, is it sounds as if you gained something internally that benefits you in such a way that you would not have gained had you not went through everything you went through. Is that's that that's the way I see it today. Um, okay. it, cer- it, it certainly didn't happen even, uh, you know, seven, eight years ago when I first started talking about this. Um, just I couldn't I couldn't see it that way. But now looking back, to be honest, like, thank God the FBI stopped me after four trades. I hate to say it. Like, what if it was five years and four trades a year and 20 trades? Um, you know, I want to make a lot more than forty six thousand dollars. Right. And nothing was stopping me at the time because. Again, I was able to say these other guys are doing it. I'm doing it small. The boss looking the other way. Like this culture wasn't going to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the FBI did me a favor of stopping me after the four trades. Right. And um, years later, uh, after I was sentenced, so after I was on the Ritual podcast, um, the FBI called me. One of the agents actually heard that first podcast interview I ever did mm-hmm. uh, with Rich, and then they invited me to speak at the FBI. And um, they said I was the youngest person they charged of the 85 people they charged. And the $46,000 was like the lowest anybody made. Mm. And I said, well, thanks for rubbing it in. I was trying not to get caught. And they said, no, actually, it was a very human story. Uh, Tom, why did you make those decisions? What did that look like? What was the culture? Because this pattern repeats like 
all the time. Mm -hmm. um, Wall Street or any regulated industry where you have rules and laws and people break them. So the FBI invited me to speak. And um, at that point, gave me the idea to go out and share the story as a, a, a professional speaker, corporate trainer. And so that happened in um, 2016. And the last seven years now, that's what I've been doing. But uh, yeah, it was um, everything, I, you know, it's cliche to say everything happens for a reason, but I am, I'm also Catholic and I think God has a plan. Just my view is God had a plan for me. Um, you know, I wasn't back at UPenn saying I'm going to go be a speaker one day about, yeah. about this thing I did. Like uh -huh. at Penn, if I had read my case, um, I'd say that would never be me because I'm a good guy. I would never do that. But once you get into the culture of any organization, no matter how many ethics hours you've had in college, once you're subsumed by that and see pressures and short-term pressures and mm -hmm. uh, an ambiguous tone from the top, do what it takes, you know, short-term, it's very easy to fall prey to that. And I think I just didn't have like the, the awareness of that at the time. Like I wasn't really self-aware enough to understand going down that slippery slope, you know, at the time as I am today. Right. Well said. And I think that it's a testament to the fact that you did this self-examination over the years, right? And you took yeah. something that affected your life in a challenging way and turned it into something greater. And I, I guess that kind of ties in with what you said, everything happens for a reason, you know? So Kudos to you, man. Kudos to you that you took that challenging experience and turned it into something very positive because you said now that you, uh, you're a speaker and I, I read where you, you spoke to, uh, you know, the rookie FBI agents in 2016 when the FBI invited you and you're doing all these speaking engagements now. Is there, is there a book in the works or, or do you have one already or? Uh, there is, there is a book in the works right now. So, um, good, good. I've, I've submitted a proposal. I'm going to try to go the publisher route first, but if I don't um, have a publisher interested, I'll, I'll probably just self-publish um, and have that, you know, as many speakers have at their speaking engagement. So that that's coming down the line for sure. Very good. Very good. And if you could go back right now and have a conversation with the 28-year-old Tom Harden, what would, how would that conversation go? Yeah, so uh, I've had a lot of time to think about that. Um, and again, going back to something I said earlier, um, you know, Tom, just focus on what you're doing, like compete with yourself, uh, focus on improving at my job, uh, being a better investor, being a better analyst. Don't drown in the insecurities of what your competition is doing to get ahead by cheating. Uh, just focus on yourself. Uh, so that's one thing I would tell young professionals today, myself being one back then. And also a couple other things I'd say is like, think about where you want to be in 10 years. So think about where you want to be when you're 38 and work backwards as to how you're going to get to that. So I wouldn't be so focused on the short term. I think I'd be thinking about, you know, where do I look like in 10 years and then work backwards, what are the steps I have to take to get there? And obviously it would have um, kept me from doing this. Uh, the third thing I would say is like get a mentor yeah. outside the industry. I didn't have any mentors at that time in my 20s. My boss was the closest thing, obviously not a great mentor. Um, I think the right mentor had I shared with them what I was seeing in my industry, you won't believe these guys are doing it. Uh, this woman just called me. I'm thinking about making a small trade. The right mentor would have slapped me around. So, yeah. hey, Tom, get outside your own head. You know what's going on. Share it with somebody and, um, you know, make sure that they sort of have that ongoing conversation. And then I guess one more thing I would say is um, I really thought about this idea of uh, resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Uh, resume virtues are pretty self-explanatory. What we want on our resume to make ourselves look better, our career better, that type of thing, what we work towards, which are important. But also think about your eulogy virtues, what you want people saying at the end of the day when it's all over here. Mm -hmm. um, and those can be two very different things. And so again, just think a little more longer term um, you know, about career, about life. Have some principles you live by, not just short term, You know, how much money I'm going to make this year. Uh, be a little bit more long term focused. Excellent. Very, very good. What's next with Tom Harden? I know you mentioned the book. What else is on the horizon? Yeah, so I'm continuing to, um, with the speaking engagements, I have about 50 talks a year, uh, once a week. Um, and so I'm continue, I want to continue to do that for, for a long time. Uh, working on some courses now too. Um, speaking is a good business, uh, but you have to constantly get booked and stay booked and keep the calendar full. And I'm trying to work on some courses too, which could be a little more passive. Mm -hmm. um and, and you know a lower price point where 
more people could take the courses. And so, um, you know, hoping to do this a long time. Again, I hope that my eulogy again that, you know, I look back on is, hey, yeah, he made those four trades when he was 29, but look what he did the rest of his life uh, to make amends for that. So I'm big on big on that. Excellent, Tom. All right. And my final question for you is something I ask each and every guest that appears on the Hidden Gateway podcast. I like to call this a token of love. You, you've definitely gave an audience very, very many good nuggets here. But I want to ask you to leave our audience with something that you feel they need to hear right now in this moment that they can take forward with them on their journey. What would that be? So a lot of times when I speak at like a conference, people will come up to me and share their own situations of maybe not breaking laws, but doing something again that was self-inflicted, maybe in their family or something that they're dealing with a lot of shame with. And I would say situations like this, like self-inflicted bad decisions can either define us the rest of our lives, where we're always coming back to this one thing over and over again. It can destroy us, uh, which can destroy our mental health, or it can develop us uh, into something else. So I always encourage people to think about define, destroy, or do you want to use this to develop into a different a different type of person yeah. uh, going forward? So just something for people to think about, because I know we're all, to some degree, have something in our life that we've done that maybe we're struggling with. Right. And so just some perspective to think about it that way. Excellent, Tom. Thank you so much for that. And tell the audience where they can find you, the website, et cetera, social media, if you have any. Sure, yeah. So I'm uh, the website's tipperx.com. And then um, the Facebook is I am Tipper X um, and I'm on uh, YouTube. I am Tipper X and then uh, Twitter and um, TikTok. And I guess the other one, Instagram, all, all of those. I have some short videos just breaking down the story or breaking down some, you know, decisions that we can all make. What does it look like um, when you might be going up to that line and, you know, you may not even know you're going up to that line. Like what, what should you be thinking about telling yourself? So feel free to check out all the videos there. Uh, and then speak a lot to, to companies and students. Uh, my hope is, uh, you know, if somebody hears this story, maybe a, a, a somebody in their 20s or a, a student, that they'll always remember it um, and, and make the right choices. So tipperx.com has all my information. Very good. I'm so glad you said that Said that at the end where you hope that some, a young person hears a story, somebody hears a story, and it may be helpful to them. I think without doubt, uh, you know, with this podcast and all these speaking engagements that you've had over the last few years here, that it has served as a benefit for someone to maybe think twice before they go down a road yeah. that could cause them a lot of a lot of anguish, trauma and hurt. So, Tom Harden, thank you once again for being a guest on the Hidden Gateway podcast. I greatly appreciate you and uh, thank you for so much for sharing your story. And to our audience, I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hidden Gateway podcast. As always, stay connected with us at thehiddengateway.com. Shoot us an email at supportthehiddengateway.com if you want to uh, chat a little further about this episode or other things. And this will conclude this week's episode. Until next time, stay positive, stay questioning, be loved, and be free. The Hidden Gateway, out.